Welcome to the Dwelling Place Church audio podcast. Thank you so much for tuning in to this week's message. We pray God speaks to you today through this message and through his word. For more information about our church, be sure to visit us on the web at dwellingplacemovement.org. Now, it's time to listen to this week's message. But we're talking about what it means to follow God and his mission beyond the 52 Sundays a year. One of the strongest challenges I have as a pastor is to try to convince the people that I pastor that what happens Monday through Saturday is just as or more important than what happens on Sunday. That we are called not to just gather services, that's a big part, but we're called to infect, if you can use that term, or to permeate our society with Christ-like thinking, Christ-like presence. And what we do as a church, even though we're five years old since relaunch, every March we come back around this theme, Missions March. And today I want to kick off our series uh, by just doing a few things uh, that I call like housekeeping items. And that is for us to get our terms and definitions correct. I think we're out of message cards. Am I correct about that? Okay. So, yeah, his is for sale, Pastor Chad said. Uh, you, can find us, you can find this on version. You version as well if you like to use uh, your device. But I think it's important for us to define some terms so that we know what it is we're actually talking about. So I want to start with a guy named Kevin Bosch. He wrote a book called Transforming Mission, just an excellent read. And he says this about mission. He says, mission is more and different from recruitment to our brand of religion. He said, mission is the alerting of people to the universal reign of God through Christ. That's an amazing statement. We are alerting people to the universal reign of God through Christ. Leslie Newbigin, he was a great missionary who went to India and served for decades. He comes back, he, he ends up, comes back to his homeland, England, and becomes a premier missional thinker uh, in our culture and to Western culture. And after he came back and served in India and came back to England, he, he quite, he couldn't really recognize the amount of transformation that had happened in England. And this is what he said, this Bible, or the Bible you hold, is covered with God's purpose of blessings for all the nations. It is concerned, watch this, with the completion of God's purpose in the creation of the world. It is not, to put it crudely, concerned with offering a way of escape for the redeemed soul out of history. No, no, no. But it's actually concerned with the action of God to bring history to its true end. Now those are huge statements right there. You've got bringing history to its true end, mission, and you've got alerting people to the universal reign of God through Christ, mission. So I want us to see that mission is bigger than evangelism. Okay, It's bigger than just evangelism. Bigger, uh, mission is bigger than just growing a church. Mission is even bigger than just proclaiming the gospel. It is the universal reign of God through Christ Jesus. Now, we as Christians, we kind of banter around different terms. And we use these terms like missional life. Or, or, and and it's, it's very important, I think, for us to, to kind of define what I mean by this. The term missionary, the term mission, the term missional, these get thrown around and we just kind of assume people know what they are. But I, I don't want to assume today. I want to be very explicit. So the term missional is basically a posture that the church is called to take in society in light of the rise of a post-Christian secular age. 
So we are in a post-modernity, a post-modernity, a post-modern age. It's a post-Christian nation, not a pre-Christian. Now, how you minister to a pre-Christian nation is different than how you minister to a post-Christian nation. Those are two different realities. And so we're in a post-Christian nation in a secular age. And so instead of sending people to other nations, what missional living here in America looks like is we have this realization that this part of the world is in dire need of an encounter with Jesus as well. In fact, America is the number two highest missionary country in the world. In other words, more missionaries are sent here than any other country in the world. We're number two, the Western world. So that's the first word, missional. It's a posture in our culture. We're living in such a way that we're declaring the rule and the reign of God in all of life. Now there's a second word to that. That that missional desire is certainly there, but also intrinsic within believers in the Western world is this angst or anxiety. And angst is a feeling of deep anxiety or dread. It's typically an unfocused one about the human condition or even the state of the world in general. So let me give you some synonyms for angst. Anxiety, fear, dread, apprehension, worry, foreboding, trepidation, malaise. But I want you to see something for a minute. These two things are are, are, are two words we're trying to put forth because what I've learned is that the first idea, which is missional, is this idea that I'm sent by God to declare the rule and reign of Jesus. But then also accompanying that is this horrible feeling of disease and anxiety and dread about doing that. So you're feeling this crux between two. I have a missional impulse, but I feel very inadequate to somehow live out that missional impulse. There's a dread about how that happens in the Western world. So we have a call, and then we have these things inside of us that we just we ta- constantly wrestle with. So what I want to do today is I want to keep today super honest, okay? Real talk, as they say. Keep it very simple, no hype, just total honesty about the task that we face in our modern day. You know, after pastoring people for over a decade, you talk to people a lot of times. I have found that people have this deep sense of angst, deep sense of dread, anxiety, and yet a deep sense and desire to see God move. And they're both there at the same time. See, a lot of people read scripture and they, they see the power of God in creation, spoken word, what uh, theologians call ex nihilo. God created out of nothing, ex nihilo. He spoke and the world came into being. Or they see the miracles in Exodus that are amazing. Or they see the miracles in Jesus' ministry of healing and resurrection. And they think to themselves, I know I did as a young Christian, oh, wouldn't it be extraordinary if I could see that? So they start off in their Christian journey. They're excited about the power of God, excited about the ministry of Jesus. And they start off strong, but then what happens? They get an alert on their phone, and 40 minutes later, they're tracking a political hashtag on Twitter, and they're late for work, and they don't know where they got here, how they got here. Because in America, we're deeply distracted. Incredibly distracted from the missional impulse God puts in our hearts. So here we are as people who want to press into what God's doing. We want to press into what we read in Scripture. But we have this angst about how to do that. Other people in the room, you grew up in the Christian tradition or Christian home. So you are kind of inspired by what I call redemptive history. So you grew up in a church and, and you had a Lottie Moon Christmas offering every year at your church. You knew the stories of Amy Carmichael. You knew the stories of Catherine Lacuna. You knew the stories of, of, of Hudson Taylor and William Carey. And you were given these stories as a kid that were so amazing about missionary and missionary efforts. And, and you thought, you know, why not me? Why, why can't God use me like God used Hudson Taylor? But here you are, 15 years later, in Atlanta, Georgia, 
in middle management in accounting, just trying to grind it out to make enough money to be able to pay for your bills, to be able to pay for your rent or to pay for your mortgage, but yet deep down in your heart is buried this idea, oh, well, what if, what if God wanted to use me that way? And yet you look at your life and it just doesn't seem realistic. I'll tell you, part of that, by the way, in our Western world is because of the environment we're in. Now, when Jesus had environments of faith, amazingly, most of the environments he operated in were environments of faith. He had, an, he had crazy amounts of miracles, but he also had to operate in what we call environments of doubt, like his hometown. He would go back to Nazareth, and the Bible says the same Jesus who just healed the withered man's hand, same power, same resident person, was unable to do many miracles there except heal a few people. Don't you like that? Just accept, I mean, just accept, you know, he couldn't do much except just heal a few people. Just totally changed their life and existence and future. But, but the Bible says he could not do many miracles there. Can I just say something to you? This is what the Lord's teaching me. Here's basically what has happened. Western society has basically, basically become as a whole Jesus' hometown. Western society is Nazareth. In other words, we're in a place where we're just not seeing God do much in terms of his power, his action, his miracles. So the only option functionally we have is we run as far as we can, but from coast to coast, from Maine to California, all we have is Jesus' hometown of cynicism and doubt so healing does happen, but in other parts of the world where they're open and they're hungry and they're seeking after God, extraordinary miracles are happening in other countries. So the goal today is this. We've got to ask ourselves the question, how much of the things of Jesus is present in our lives? Today's teaching text we'll see is Luke chapter 6 and 1 John chapter 2. I'm going to read two different scriptures in our hearing and we're going to Look at these today. Luke chapter 6, verse 40. The Bible says, The student is not above the teacher, Jesus speaking, but everyone who is fully trained will be like their teacher. Wow. That's a powerful statement. First John chapter 2. We know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. Or commands for whoever says, I know him, but does not do what he commands is a liar, and the truth's not in that person. But anyone who obeys his word, watch this, love for God is truly made complete in that obeyer. This is how we know we are in him. How do we know we're in him? For whoever claims to live in him, that's us, living in Jesus, must live. It's not an option. Must live as Jesus did. Now, these are beautiful passages that I've chosen today. And so what we're going to do over the next month is spend the next month talking about the culture of our church, the kind of people we want to be, the things we want to see God do in our midst. And today I want to share a very simple message to you. I'm sacrificing language sophistication for clarity. And here's my great fallocal title, amazing title. It's called The Things of Jesus. The Things of Jesus. The Things of Jesus. What I want to do is get us as a congregation and you as an individual to ask yourself how much of the things of Jesus are present in my life. Luke chapter 6 makes this extraordinary claim. What does it say? The student, Jesus said, is not above the master or the teacher, but everyone who is fully trained will be like their teacher. What a promise, y'all. If you're fully, what Jesus is saying, hey, if you become my disciple and you learn from me and you take my yoke upon you, then what happens is you'll become like me. That's a crazy promise. If you're perfectly trained, you're going to be like Jesus. We are, as his people, called out. And we are called out with the characteristics of Jesus and the ministry of Jesus in our own life and in our own discipleship. 
Now, you know this by now, this will not happen by accident. It's not going to happen by accident. You're not going to wake up one day and say, wow, I'm amazingly godly. You know, that's not going to happen. You're not going to wake up and be surprised by your godliness. It doesn't happen like that. When Paul's trying to talk to the Galatians, he shows his apostolic heart, his pastoral heart, and he says in Galatians 4.19, he said, I'm in the pains, again, actually, again, because he had it before. Again, I am in the pains of childbirth. Watch this. Until Christ be formed in you. So he had this painful intercession, this painful agonizing vision of helping the people he pastored to be filled or formed like Jesus. Romans 8, 29, the Bible says, those God foreknew, he predestined, that's us, to be conformed to the likeness of his son, that he, Jesus, would be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. Listen to me. You and I have been chosen by God to become like Jesus. God chose us to become like his son. He, he picked us and he's chosen us and he is willing to do the work in us to get us to look like his son Jesus. So in our lives, what should be our vision? Our overwhelming, overarching vision of life should be that. That I would live like Jesus, act like Jesus, talk like Jesus, be like Jesus. So in preparation for missions, Mark, here's what I've been doing in my own life. I've been asking myself the question, how much of the stuff of Jesus' life is present in my life? How much is actually in my life? I didn't say how much of the content of Jesus is in my life. How much of the words of Jesus is in my life. That's not what I said. I said how much of the stuff of Jesus, the things of Jesus, are present in my life. So what I want to do is I want to address what I'm considering three of the most neglected aspects of the ministry of Jesus in the Western world, the Western church. And in many ways, they're neglected in our own church. Now, if I was in Africa and I was in underground Iran, I'd preach a different message. I'd preach a different message, but I'm addressing where we are as Westerners, Western individuals, as the people of God in the land. And when we talk about the missing elements of Jesus from our lives, I want to put three ideas, three moments on the table, so to speak, and you can consider them with me. And then what we can do at the end of this is we can say to Jesus, increase this in my life, Lord. Increase this in my life. Grow this in my life. In other words, teacher, train me to become like you in these areas. You got that? That's what a disciple is. He's trained by the master. She's trained by the master. Lord, teach me how to grow in these areas. Here's the first, first area that I think is neglected. That's the miracles of Jesus. The miracles of Jesus. Let me talk about the miraculous power of Jesus. Now, y'all, this is at the heart of the Christian faith. A lot of people say, oh, of course, Jesus did an occasional miracle. He was kind of obligated to do it as the son of God on earth. But if you're honest, Pastor Craig, miracles weren't really the focus of his ministry. Okay, fair. Let's take a look. Let's take a look and see if they were the focus or if they're peripheral in his ministry. Jesus raises Jairus' daughter to life, Mark chapter 5. Jesus heals two blind men, Matthew chapter 9. Jesus heals a man unable to speak, Matthew chapter 9. I'm not repeating these, by the way. I'm not taking the same miracle in each synoptic gospel and repeating them. These are all distinct, unique miracles. Jesus heals an invalid at Bethesda, the pool of Bethesda. Jesus feeds 5,000, Matthew 14. Jesus walks on water, John 6. Jesus heals many sick in the region or lake of Gennesaret or the Sea of Galilee. Jesus turns water into wine, first miracle at Cana of Galilee, John 2. Jesus heals an official son, John 4. Jesus drives out an evil spirit, Mark 1. Jesus heals Peter's mother-in-law there on the seashore in Capernaum. She's sick with a fever. Jesus heals many sick of evening, actually 
actually all night to the middle of the night, Mark 1. The first miraculous catch of fish, Luke chapter 5. Jesus cleanses a man with leprosy, Matthew chapter 8. Jesus heals a centurion servant, Matthew chapter 8. Jesus heals a paralytic, Matthew chapter 9. Jesus heals a weathered man's hand, a withered man's hand, Matthew 12. Jesus raises a widow's son in Nain at the town gate. She is now a widow with only one child. Jesus calms a storm, Mark chapter 4. Jesus casts demons into a pig in the region of the Gerasenes, Mark 5. Jesus heals a woman in a crowd, Matthew chapter 9, with the issue of blood for 12 years. Jesus heals a Gentile woman's demon-possessed daughter, Matthew 15. Jesus heals a deaf and dumb man. How do you heal a deaf and dumb man in a way he understands him? You take him away from the crowd and you touch his tongue and you touch his eyes because when God heals us, he wants to heal us in a language we understand. Come on, thank you, Jesus. That's not in my notes. Jesus feeds 4,000, Mark chapter 8. Jesus heals a blind at Bethsaida, Mark chapter 8. Jesus, what does he do? He heals a boy with a demon, Matthew chapter 17. Jesus heals a miraculous temple tax and a fish's mouth in the lake of Gennesaret, Matthew 17. Jesus heals a blind, mute, demoniac, Luke 11. Jesus heals a crippled woman, Luke 13. Jesus heals a man with dropsy on the Sabbath, the, the inflammation, too much water in the flesh, dropsy, Luke 14. Jesus cleanses 10 lepers, John 7, Luke 17. Jesus raises, raises Lazarus from the dead after four days, John 11. Jesus restores sight to blind Bartimaeus in Jericho, Matthew 20. Jesus withers, withers the fig tree on the triumphal or just before the triumphal entry. Jesus heals a servant's severed ear. Literally, he's getting arrested and he's dropping miracles. The second miraculous catch of fish, John 21. Greg, what are you saying? I want you to see very clearly. Miracles were not peripheral to the ministry of Jesus. Miracles were central to the ministry of Jesus. They were at the heart of the ministry of God. And now here's what's interesting. When we ask, what was Jesus trying to do in those miracles? Some people that don't believe in the supernatural, they say, oh, Jesus was trying to prove he was the son of God. Well, true, accurate to some sense. So what I did is I took all those miracles and I put them in a pie chart this week. And I did the math for you. I did the math for you. 22% of the miracles Jesus does, no doubt he's doing it to prove he's the son of God, confirming his deity. But more than half of them, it's actually close to 60%. The reason Jesus performed the miracle is because he's just having mercy on people. He's just having mercy on us. He knows we are but dust, and to dust we shall return. He knows we need him. He knows apart from him we have no life. Jesus, watch this, used the power available to him. What? Because of his heart. His heart was driving him. 25% of the miracles were, were about delivering people from the evil one. In fact, Peter says, okay, it's time to summarize Jesus' ministry. How do I take three and a half years of following this guy, this God-man, and put it into a sentence? So he gives us that sentence in Acts chapter 10, verse 38. And here's how Peter summarizes Jesus. That God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and power. Do you see Holy Spirit and power? People say the Holy Spirit is just an impersonal force. Well, that would be redundancy. We know he's not a power because he's a person. Or it would just say power and power. So he's not just power, he's a person. He was anointed with the Holy Spirit and power. Watch this. And how he went around, watch this, doing good and healing all who were under the power of the devil because God was with him. So when Peter summarizes the ministry of Jesus, it comes down to this for Peter. Jesus is doing good and he's delivering all under the power of the evil one. Y'all, this is central to what Jesus is doing in the world today. Now Jesus comes along and says something extraordinary. I pray your faith builds as you read these words and just to listen to them afresh. John 14, Jesus before his deathbed speech begins to divulge what's really his heart for his disciples. And, and after he is 
gotten up from the upper room where he washed the disciples' feet and ate the Last Supper. He takes them through the rows of grapevines. And up to the right is, is the area of the, the, the Mount, of, uh, Mount of Olives. And here is the, the Garden of Gethsemane where he's going to ultimately be turned over in just a few hours. And he looks at the disciples and he says, Very truly, I tell to you. Now, he does that eight times in John's Gospel. Very truly, I tell you. Amazing because... You've never lied, Jesus, but yet what you're about to say is so mind-blowing. You're going to go ahead and tell us again that I'm actually not lying. I'm truly telling you what I really know to be true of my Father. And he says, whoever believes in me, watch this, whoever, anyone who believes in me will do the works I've been doing. And they, who, those who believe in me will do even greater things than these. Why? Because I'm going to the Father. And I will do whatever you ask in my name so that the Father would be glorified in me. Lord, it's your reputation on the line. If I got sickness on my body, I'm praying, God, you heal me. It's not my reputation, it's yours. So if you want your name to be as the healer, then you do something in my body. You, you, you like this kind of boldness? I really like this boldness. And he says, so that, the, the, that what? The Father would be glorified in the Son. That's his prayer. And watch this. And you may ask me, what? For anything in my name, Jesus says, and I will do it. Now, time out, y'all. It is unbelievable in the Western world how quickly someone begins to say, well, I know Jesus said that, but here's what he really meant. Like all of commentaries, this is what commentaries do. Like, well, it can't obviously be and remain and mean that Jesus meant what he actually meant. I know Jesus has said that, but when you read commentaries, it's really clear that Jesus actually meant what he actually meant is not actually what you're actually reading that Jesus didn't mean anyone who believes in him like it's a special category of anyone that doesn't include us in America like seriously y'all it's honestly amazing how much work goes in to trying to tell Jesus that he didn't mean what he meant to try to communicate to him what he didn't mean and that's what we do. That's us Westerners. Now, why is this? C.S. Lewis, he says this. He says, the mind which asks for a non-miraculous Christianity is a mind that's already in process of relapsing from Christianity into mere religion. There is no Christianity apart from the supernatural power of God. This is true, so why don't we see God do much in the West? This is a great question. I mean, it's honestly amazing, right? All over the world, God is moving in such tremendous power. Some of you, you've been on mission trips internationally. You know what I'm talking about. You prepare for the mission trip. You get all packed up. You go through custom. Or you go through the, the check-in. You get your international luggage. You've got your nice little passport. And you got your little visa stamp. You're heading to Mozambique. You're heading to Colombia, Peru, you know, wherever it is you're going. Sri Lanka. And here you are. You get on the plane. And when you get on the plane, ladies and gentlemen... We welcome you to flight blah, 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 blah from Delta Airlines. If you could please, at this time, stow away your laptops and electronic devices. Please return your chairs to the upright position and stow away your tray tables. We're going to be taking off shortly. If you could, at this time, realize the stewardesses will be making their way through the cabin and they're going to be handing out spiritual gifts that work in other parts of the world and you'll be able to utilize those on mission there for the next 10 days. You land... You prayed the same prayers you prayed in America. Limbs are growing back. Blinded eyes are being opened. Cancers falling off of people. Scales coming off their skin. Multitudes of people are coming to hear the preached gospel in open air auditoriums. I mean, it's amazing. And then what happens? You get on the plane, come back to America, you land in Atlanta. Welcome to Atlanta International Airport. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, thank you for your international trip. Before you go through customs, would you please leave the power of God and the supernatural gifts of the Holy Spirit in other parts of the world? Amen. Thank you. You're now in America. Right? 
You know what I'm talking about. I mean, it's amazing how this happens. So why don't we see it? So here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to propose to you a couple of reasons why I don't think we see it. You take them or leave them. Here's number one. I think one of the main serious reasons we have to reckon with is this. Too many of us are just disappointed with God. If we're honest with ourselves, we're just disappointed with Him. You say, what do you mean? Well, you know what I used to be, Pastor Craig? You know, like I, I became a Christian in a Pentecostal youth group and I was all up in it. Fasting weekly. Laying hands on sick people at the high school. But honestly, Pastor Craig, when I became adult, it just didn't work. Others are like, I really prayed. I, I, I really prayed and I took God's word. I took him at his word. I took it seriously and it just didn't work. And although you've not said it yet, maybe you could say it today. God, you did not come through for me the way I wanted you to come through for me. Or a lot of people, what they do is they just carry disappointment in their heart because they can't get rid of God. They've seen too many miracles. They've seen too much. He's done too much. But what they do is they create a God who has no power. So they spend the rest of their life insulated from anything that would be of risk. And they just go to God for personal comfort. What we've got to do this morning is be honest enough to come before the Lord and deal with our disappointment. Have you ever had disappointment in God? If you haven't, then you had not lived long enough. You may have known Jesus about four or five hours, probably. Wait to hour 40 or 41. John the Baptist had disappointment with God, didn't he? John the Baptist had uh, quite a strong start to his walk with God. Filled with the Holy Spirit in the womb. Hey, when did you become a Christian? Eh, Filled with the Holy Ghost in the womb. (laughs) In utero. My heart had just been formed hours before. Got filled with the Holy Ghost. I mean, that's a, I mean, this dude goes from strength to strength. You don't talk about a guy that goes from strength to strength. Oh, he's preaching revival, y'all. He got, he's eating grasshoppers, drinking honey. He's out in the middle of nowhere. Nowhere. Did y'all see that locust swarm in Africa this week? It was unbelievable. Unbelievable. I was watching the international news. Get back on track. But he was eating locusts. Here he is drinking honey. And what, is the, what, what, what happens? People are coming to him from nowhere. They're witnessing the miracles. And then what happens? He gets jailed because he speaks truth to power. He speaks truth to Herodias and King Herod. And now he's in jail. And here he is in jail. And he's got behind bars. And he has this moment where he begins to doubt. So what he does, he gets a servant around him, or servants, and he sends a message to Jesus. And he says, hey, go give him this message. Um, are you the one, the promised one, or is there one to come? Dude, he's his cousin. He baptized him and saw the Trinity on earth. And when his head's about to get cut off, he's doubting. And you know what happens? I love Jesus' response. He said to the disciples who came and asked him, he said, hey, do the, do the dead live again? Blind eyes, do they see? Do the deaf hear? In other words, he's saying the kingdom of God is breaking out all around. But listen, John, don't lose heart on account of me. It is amazing, y'all, that Jesus seems to say and suggest that sometimes the kingdom of God breaks out all around us, but it doesn't happen to us personally. That's a word for leadership. It's like God's kingdom is expressed through my life. Through my hands, through my words, through my witness, through my actions. But it's not happening to me personally. And it's honestly fascinating to me. It's something I've noticed in my own Christian life. Some of my friends who genuinely move in the power of the Spirit, genuinely move in the gifts of the Spirit, they sometimes struggle in the very areas that God uses them to grant breakthrough in other people's areas. I don't know why that is. I really don't know. But let me tell you one big part that I think might be. 
it's because we have to understand that the power of God is not meant to make us like Bruce Almighty where we get whatever we want whenever we want it. It's designed primarily by God to bless other people. So the, the help of God, the, the power of God, the ministry of His Holy Spirit is designed to help people. Now there's nothing wrong with wanting it myself, but I think so often we're so hungry for it ourselves that if God actually gave it to us, that His power, literally, we would just spool ourselves spiritually and not steward it for the benefit of the people around us. Steward it for the lives around us, to be a blessing, the people that are around us. Another reason I don't think, I think we struggle, I should say, with cynicism. We struggle in the Western world with cynicism. I call it like a, a sort of um, sophistication bias towards the supernatural in our Western faith. You say, Craig, what do you mean? Like, hey, we're, those spiritual, spirit-filled people, they're nut jobs. I saw a YouTube video of a person from that church, random person in the parking lot, he was doing all kinds of crazy stuff. And I'm like, yeah, that random person in the parking lot, I'm sure embodies everything that the core teaching of that church teaches. Right? So what do we do? We begin to judge ministries by the abuses that are associated with random people who show up at those ministries rather than the core teaching of the ministry itself. Now, if we are using the spiritual gifts to entertain believers and not bless others, you think those spiritual gifts will keep being operative? So what have we done? Let's get in church service, and then let's use the spiritual gifts to entertain one another. Woo, he's got it. But woo, see that prophetic guy? Yeah, I'm getting in line today. Anoint me. Well, the spiritual gifts aren't meant to entertain one another. They're meant to serve broken people. They're meant to serve the world around us. That's where the power of God is designed, to be effective witnesses for his kingdom. That's why he baptizes, Jesus does, us in the Holy Spirit. So we get arrogant, right? And we, we see a manifestation of, of God, and we say, oh, that's not of God, that's weird. As if your personal level of comfortability is the measuring rod by which the God of the universe gets to manifest his power. As if he checks with you. You think it's going to be cool? You're going to be comfortable with it? Okay, I'll do it. Right? And then we dismiss anything that we're not comfortable with. John Wesley, here's what John Wesley says, the great, the great Wesley this is what he said. He said, the grand reason why the miraculous gifts were so soon withdrawn from the early church was not only that faith and holiness were nigh lost from God's people, but that dry, formal, orthodox men began to ridicule whatever gifts they didn't have. They began to ridicule the gifts that they didn't have and to cry against them all, all as evil madness. It's amazing how we get rigid and create these rules and we say what God can do and what God can't do. Well, he can do this, but he can't do that. I was reading an account of the Hebrides Revival. And many of you heard of the Hebrides Revival. A guy named Duncan Campbell led that revival. Amazing, amazing revival. I mean, literally hundreds of thousands of people affected. And I was reading the account. And do you know one of the main reasons that the people of his time resisted him in that Hebrides Revival? It's because he preached in brown shoes instead of black shoes. Now, you're looking at me like, oh, that's funny. No, I'm, I'm being serious. And if you haven't been in environments like this of traditional faith in America, then you just need to jump around because that's all I come from, okay? Literally, they thought he can't be of God because he's in brown shoes and not black shoes. Hundreds of people, don't we do it today? Oh, don't, don't, use, don't use shoes, but use clothes, right? Or you post a picture on Instagram, a bunch of young people, lights off, lights on behind them, they're worshiping, and then what does what is, what is, uh, old Johnny, cynical Johnny say? Ah, it looks like a bar to me. Like, shut up, Johnny. This is people, young people worshiping God. Get off of their worship. 
Who cares what it looks like? Who cares if it's different from your generation? Who cares if it doesn't? I mean, we're, gonna let, we're, we're not going to sacrifice the future generation on the altar of my own preferences. I'm not going to say my preferences are more important than people coming to know him, people coming to engage him, people coming to love him, right? So here we are in kind of this place, and Duncan Campbell's preaching, and they're saying, hey, and by the way, he wasn't even actually preaching the gospel. Y'all, he, he only preached the law. I mean, he, you're going to hell on account of God. There's only one person that can save you. I'm not even kidding. This is what he preached. And they said, ah, he's not biblical. He's got brown shoes on. He's preaching the judgment of God to show people they need Christ. Ah, he's, he's not biblical. It's amazing how we don't like things that we're uncomfortable with. I will say this. For all of those negative skepticals, there are some people in our nation, some people in your life who just possess that weird personal culture of faith. You know what I'm talking about? Like the woman with the issue of blood. I mean, she's desperate, dude. She sees the miracle worker, hears about the miracle worker. She becomes a spiritual kleptomaniac. She's like a thief. She's like pushing through the crowd. She's like, I just want one touch. I just want one touch. That's all I need. I spent all I had, 12 years on a doctor, never stopped the flow of blood, just one touch. And she touches him. And Jesus stops and says, hey, who took power from me? The disciples are like, like a throng of people around you, bro. I got tons of people are touching. No, no, somebody took power from me. Own up. Who is it that obtained what they needed by faith without even asking my permission? Who is it? Who, who had so much faith that they didn't even ask my permission and they, and they took from me my own power, right? And she's like, sorry. And he's like, no, daughter, go in faith, Right? Your faith has made you well. What about the Roman centurion? Remember him? He comes to Jesus. He's like, hey, I understand how this thing goes, man. This whole authority thing. I realize it. Okay, you don't even need to come. My son's sick, dead. You, you don't even need to come. Just say the word. And Jesus is like, woo! Looks around the disciples and says, my own people. The Israelites don't have faith like this. You're going to get what you need today, dad. And he heals his son. Then there's that unbiblical scene in the Bible. I was supposed to merit a laugh. But it didn't. So let me try it again. There's that unbiblical scene in the Bible. There you go. Where the people who had a, a friend that was paralyzed, right? And they got to get him to Jesus. They're carrying him on like a, you know, Aladdin's rug. And they're holding all four sides. And here they walk up to the, to the door and the bouncers of Jesus are there like, mm, turn around. So like, nope. <laughs> Next time you see us, we'll be in the altar, okay? They go up on top of the dude, get a ladder, cut off the roof. Here they do. Jesus is preaching. They drop this dude. Right in front of him. This is amazing. And you know what the Bible says? The Bible says, when Jesus saw their faith, not his faith, not paralytic faith, not lame faith, when he saw the friend's faith, when he saw their faith, what does it say? He healed the man. It's amazing, y'all, because it's not biblical. It's not biblical to get something by somebody else's faith. Except in this case... These people's faith brought something to a man who didn't have faith. And if you push theologians here, they'll be like, I don't know. Don't talk about it. Don't bring it up again. Okay? Or just dismiss it. Why? It's not biblical. But it's biblical. But in general, in the West, we don't see miracles like this. I will tell you, though, when you look at Jesus' miracles, it seemed that miraculous happened most, not just when an individual had faith, but when a community had hunger. When a community, that's the number one thing I'm trying to do here as your pastor, is trying to cultivate. Remember I told you two weeks ago, I am the joy cultivator. I'm also the hunger cultivator. I want to grow the joy center of your brains. 
And I want us to say that we are going to hunger after the presence of God and I want more of the ministry of Jesus. I want more of the things of Jesus in my life. Y'all, this is not all there is. If this is all there is, I might go back. This is not all there is. There's so much more. And sometimes we reject Jesus because we're so self-sufficient, right? We don't need him. I don't need that. I never forget years ago I was ministering to church and the Lord gave me kind of this little vision. I saw like a, uh, like a bullseye on top of a person's head. And this person was kind of like shooing away the Holy Spirit and resisting the Holy Spirit. And so I got preaching. I said, um, I feel like somebody in the room, you, you've been resisting the ministering gift of the Holy Spirit. And I preached the message. And uh, this lady comes up. And she tells me, I became a Christian over 40 years ago. And she said, not long after that, I was given the gift of tongues. I was baptized by Jesus, and I was given a prayer language. I was given the gift of tongues. And she said, everybody in my church said it was demonic, and it was not of God. So she said, you know what I did? I've had this desire to pray in tongues for 30 years, but I've been suppressing it and suppressing it. And I realized today, you know what? I'm trying to push him off, but now the Holy Spirit wants to flow through me. And she said, do you mind if I sing in tongues over you? I said, baby, let me have it. You want to sing in tongues over me? I'll take any kind of singing. I'll take English singing, much less tongues. You know what I'm saying? I need as much prayer as I can get. And that lady put those hands on me, and she opened up her mouth, and the presence of God flew out of her. Been suppressing for 30 years. My son, um, when he was just a year it was 2011. We were living in Cleveland at the time, and we didn't have two kids, nor obviously three kids. We were living in a 1,000-square-foot apartment, townhome. I was preaching a revival service, and my son couldn't go because he had an ear infection in his right ear. He had like four in his first year of life, that right ear. So they're going to put tubes and do the whole deal, right? And my wife had to stay home, so I got done preaching, and these people, uh, very filled with the Spirit, operating prophetic gifts, they invited me to the back room, and so I was in the back room, and they just said, we want to pray over you. I had no idea because these things normally don't happen to me, and I'm there for like two hours. Several of them operating in the prophetic gifts. And one of the things I said, with all due respect, can I call time out and call my wife and put her on speaker? Because I want her to hear all that's happening. You know, she's at home. And one of the prophetic words, I won't give you all, one of them was that we were going to have another child. We need to move out of our town home. And we already knew the name of the second child. Now, Meredith and I had only picked a girl name, not a guy name. So we knew the second was going to be a girl. Yeah, her name's Marley Ann Mosgrove. The second thing that, that said, the Lord spoke to them or spoke through them to me is that God... Very clearly, I'll never forget it. God has given you the ears of the next generation. In other words, God has given you their ears and they're listening to what you teach them. And as a result, the enemy is coming to try to attack your own child's ears. And, and, and the word of the Lord came and said, but from this moment forward, he will never deal with an ear infection again. And since that day, he's never dealt with another ear infection. God completely, by the power of God and prophetic word, healed that ear. I never forget, I was so overwhelmed with the prophetic gift. I don't often operate in this gift, but being in the presence of other believers, I went home, I walked home. I didn't have a car, my wife dropped me off. I'm walking through the streets about three o'clock in the morning in Cleveland. I get home, go to sleep, walk into church the next morning, and I'm doing discovery discipleship, and literally there's a prophetic mantle. It's almost like a jewelry on my, and I'm like prophesying in ways I never prophesied. Uh, I was never used to that gift, but God was just giving prophetic words in that environment of faith where people are exercising spiritual gifts and love, where others are being edified in the body of Christ. You say, Craig, are you supposed to, are you supposed to uh, believe God for these things? Of course. You know, I never told my son that story. I wanted to 
got older. So we got in the truck today, and I said, hey, buddy, you get in the front seat, not the back seat. He gets in the front seat, and we're driving here. I said, son, can I tell you something? He said, yeah. I said, when you were one years old, you had an ear infection. I went through the whole story, and I finished the story. And he looked at me, he said, are you serious, Dad? I said, yeah. And then the whole rest of the ride, we didn't talk to each other driving down 575. And I looked at him out of the corner of my eye, and he was looking out the window, and he was saying, thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. And I said, Lord, do it in our day. My God, I don't care if it starts in DP Kids. I don't care if it takes a babe to stretch our faith. You stretch our faith with the things of Jesus. I don't want dead, cold religion that has a bunch of information that looks like a bobblehead that has little body or ministry or miracle. I want to see the kingdom of God expressed in our life. So if it needs to start in babes, do it, God. If I'm so cynical, you got to use my son, use my son. Whatever it takes, God. Lord, let us see the things of Jesus, the miracles of Jesus in our day. Some of you, that's a word for you. You start coming to our church, you're like, I like the teaching. Woo, I like it. Solid. I tolerate the worship. A little expressive. King's doing a little bit high jumping on the front row. A little bit too high for me. I'll hold the TV, but I ain't going to wash the windows. Okay? No matter how many times you tell me to wash them, I'm not putting the hands up. I'm going to hold the TV. Okay? Teaching solid. Prayer. Kind of, I just kind of survive. But I wonder today if this morning is not the morning you open up your heart and God breaks in. I had the sense as I was driving in this morning, there are people who resist the gifts of the Holy Spirit. And if you open up, God will give you the gift of tongues to help your prayer life. God will do it today. He'll baptize you. Jesus is the spirit baptizer. You say, Craig, is tongues scriptural? Of course it is. 1 Corinthians 14, Paul says, I'm going to pray in the spirit and pray with understanding. Notice what he said. He said, if I pray in the spirit, my prayer language, my mind is unfruitful, 14. But what should I do? I'm going to pray with my spirit, tongues, and I'm going to pray with my understanding, English, Portuguese, whatever your language is. Then I'm going to sing with my spirit, sing in tongues. And then what I'm going to do, I'm going to also sing with my understanding. Y'all, there's a young lady in our church who has caused some, some trouble in the past. Um, she approached me after this first gathering, and she had written something to me. And she's never, her demeanor was different. She was changed. I could tell it from the instant. She wanted a hug. She wanted to talk. She gave me a number. She wrote down all this whole list. I'm not going to go into it. She was sitting in our first gathering, and she was listening to the voice of the enemy that God couldn't forgive her, all of the lies of his pain. He's going to continue to give pain in your life. He's going to continue to hurt you. It gives him pleasure to hurt you. And then she writes down, 12 years old, today I accept Jesus Christ. I turn away from Satan, and I let God's holiness fill me. This morning, this morning, so I don't know, I don't know what you need, but I know Jesus is kind, and I know he only gives good gifts to his children, that's all he gives, good gifts to his children, so you can say today, God, that's what I want, I want to be filled with your spirit, y'all, when I was first given the gift of tongues, I, I was, uh, was kind of guy like, I don't want some Pentecostal nut like touching me and giving it to me. You know what I'm saying? I was like, God, you give it to me. If you want me to have it, give it to me. I never forget, I was probably six months old in the Lord, and I came on a Sunday night, and I came to the altar, and I said, God, I'm so hungry. God, you said you're the living water, that I would thirst for you, and you would fill me. And I'm going to tell you, I don't know how to explain it, other than I felt for the first time in my life a lightning bolt 
come from heaven. And I was struck with the power of God. And I began to, in that church, I began to pray in tongues as loud as my lungs would give it. Now, I didn't have a full language. I just had a couple of syllables. I had a couple of words that I was praying in the spirit. But I would tell you, I would have these moments over the next few weeks where I'd be so overwhelmed with the power of God. I would pull over my little Toyota Tacoma on the side of the road because I literally couldn't see for the tears. And I'd cry out to God and say, God, have mercy on me. God, feel me. God, use me. And I realize for some in this room, that's a reality of an expectation for you to be filled with the Spirit, to help your prayer life. Do you know what the gift of tongues does? I'm telling you, the gift of tongues is a sign that reduces the articulate and the educated to babble, and it lifts up the poor with the language of heaven. So it takes our sophisticated Western world, brings us to babble, and it takes the poor and uneducated and gives them the language of heaven. The gift of tongues, beautiful. And I say that to you because y'all know I love the Bible. I love the Bible. Y'all, I love doctrine. My kids watch Netflix and I'm reading systematic theology when my kids are watching Netflix. I love it. I'll read it all day long. I love the Bible. But did you know the book is not the book in itself? The book is meant to bring you into his presence. That's what the Bible is. It's not an end in itself. The Bible is designed to get you to a person the person of Jesus. You need to see the Bible like a door, the door into a relationship with the God of the Bible. Listen, so many of us in the Bible Belt, we need to be saved from our salvation and we need to come to Jesus. <laughs> we need to save from our religious tradition and actually just come to the person of Christ to actually encounter him in his word. That's what we're in desperate need of. I told the earlier gathering, we're like a bobblehead. I got Swamberson, Charlie Culberson, Dansby Swanson down there. <laughs> we're like a bobblehead. You know, it's amazing when you look at a bobblehead because we're in the Western church. We got all this wisdom. We got huge heads. We got little teeny bitty bodies. And then when I go to Africa, they got teeny teeny little heads with little understanding of the experiences they're experiencing. Huge bodies, major miracles, and they're craving theology. They're craving to understand what's actually happening. So I don't want to be a bobblehead church. I don't want to be a Dansby, Swanson, Charlie Culberson bobblehead, bobblehead, right? I want to be an individual and a church that says, you know what? We're going to embrace all of it for the glory of God. All of it. So the things of Jesus, miracles. Here's the second part. The message of Jesus. This is often missing in our faith today, the message of Jesus. Jesus basically had two main themes. Everybody say two themes. Here's the themes. I'm going to give them to you quickly. Message number one was the message of the kingdom of God. That's what Jesus preached, the kingdom of God. He shows up in Mark 1. Did you know the first word out of Jesus' mouth in Mark's gospel? Mark's the first gospel written, Matthew 2nd, Luke 3rd, John 4th. So the first word ever recorded in human history in the Bible, the oracles of God, you know what he first says? It's backwards in English. He says, fulfilled. It's the first word out of Jesus' mouth. Isn't that amazing? The first word out of his mouth is fulfilled. Not strive, not you get it done. He said, fulfilled. I've showed up. The kingdom of God's here. You know what he said? The kingdom of God's at hand. You repent and believe the good news. That's what he said. At the end of his life, he said, before I go to the Father, I want to tell you. At the end of this life, this gospel of the kingdom will be preached to all nations. Acts ends with Paul telling, telling uh, the, the world with, through Luke that he spent a town or time in a town talking to anyone and everyone about the kingdom of God. Listen, we are not just preaching a gospel of personal salvation. Though it's important, that's not the gospel we're preaching. Just personally be saved. The gospel we're preaching is we are making an announcement to our city, to our community, to our nation, to our world. Hey, understand the king has landed and he set up shop and his influence is increasing as long as we're in this area. 
It's not decreasing. The influence of the rule and the reign of Jesus will increase as we stay here. Why? Because the king has landed. Now, did the Jewish people accept that message? No, they rejected it because they didn't have a grid for the overlapping ages. They thought when Jesus came the first time, he would, he would uh, liberate them from Roman oppression and rule, and they thought he would set up shop in Jerusalem as the king, the monarchy, and then he would be kind of like a worshiping warrior like David. And so then when Jesus came that way, and he didn't look like that, they didn't know the kingdom was coming in seed form, in, in love, not coercional power. They didn't know it. So Jesus is actually okay with the kingdom being expressed, just sneaking in. That's how it happened in my life. Snuck into me, caught me off guard. 16 years old, now he's changed my whole family. It just sneaks in. It finds root. What does? The kingdom of God, and then it begins to grow. It begins to blossom, and it was going to sneak in through the early church. And it seemed impossible that the message would go to the ends of the earth in 30 AD. But you know what? Now, 2,000 years later, there's 2.5 billion of us who say Jesus was on to something with the kingdom of God. So it's important we preach the gospel of the kingdom, not just the gospel of the nation we live in. Did you know we limit the power of God and what he wants to do when we just preach the gospel of our nation? Did you know we lose credibility with the outside world when we only talk about earthly kingdoms and not God's heavenly kingdom? We have to reclaim this as the people of God. We are kingdom people. We are Jesus people. Listen to Lana Ravenhill. <laughs> he said, if Jesus had preached the same message that pastors preach today, he'd have never been killed. So soft, tickles their ears. They'd have never been mad at him. Morality, message on ethics, no, no, no. The message of Jesus. Here's the second part. So you got the message of the kingdom. Second part is the message of Jesus himself. The message of Jesus himself. Second Corinthians 4 and 5, this is what it said. It says, we preach not ourselves, but Jesus as Lord. And ourselves, what? Servants for Jesus' sake. You know what that means? What message we preach in DP? We're not preaching ourselves, we're preaching... Jesus. We're preaching the message of Jesus, the kingdom of God, the message of Jesus. Y'all, Jesus made extraordinary claims. There's never been a person who lived like Jesus. All throughout human history, there's a lot of people who had Messiah complexes, and they said, I'm a God, I'm a God, I'm a God, and yet they turn into horrible dictators who use everybody else for their own personal gain. On the other hand, you have people who are saint-like figures who give their life away for the poor, the needy, those around them, yet they say, I'm not God, I'm only a saint, I'm lowest on the totem pole. Jesus is the only figure in human history who shows up on the scene and says, I'm God, and yet I'm going to live like a saint, and I'm going to give my life away for people who don't even know me in total humility there's never been one like Jesus no one's ever been a figure like Jesus he's the only one who ever says I am fill in the blank whatever you need not my teaching is not my ethics are not my ideas are but I am Let's see what Jesus says he is. He is the son of God. He is the son of man. He's the giver eternal life. He's one with the father. He is who? Jesus, the one who forgives sin. Jesus says, if you're hungry, I'm the bread of life. If you need direction, I'm the good shepherd. Hey, you need a, you need a power source? You feeling a little weak in your marriage? I'm the true vine. Why don't you abide in me? Hey, hey, you need a thir you thirsty in your world? I am the true living water. Hey, you dark? Is it dark in your marriage? Is it dark in your home? I'm the light of the world. Hey, do you need some help and an advocate with the father? I'm the future judge. Hey, do you need somebody take away your sin to do away with your sin I am the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world you need to be filled with the Holy Spirit I'm the baptizer in the Holy Spirit you need access you're trying to get into doors I am the door itself you need a Savior to liberate you I'm the Savior you need an anointed one I'm the Messiah you got heal you got illness in your body I am the healer and most of all I am the way the truth and the life y'all we have got to preach 
Jesus. The most brilliant strategy of the enemy is to get us to talk about everything around Jesus, but not Jesus. Paul liked boxing. 1 Corinthians 9, I don't beat like a man beating the air. In boxing, you got different punches. You know the jab punch? Little jabber. Jabber, you will not win a fight with a jab punch. If you do, you're like the first in history. You know what the jab punch does? It's to, it's to put the person off balance so that you can load up and create space to give them a sucker punch, right? The power punch. Across, I mean, think Rocky here. Adrian! You know, think, think, think the power punch, right? Well, listen, when I think of the American church, what we are doing is we're just jabbing. Spirituality. <laughs> Ethics. Celebrity pastors. Famous churches. Groups with no power. We're jabbing. And what God is waiting for us to do is to load up. Load up with the gospel of Jesus. Give people Jesus. And cold clonk the devil. You know what? I don't care if my kid become a pastor or a worship leader. I just want my babies to know Jesus. I just want my babies to know Jesus. To love Jesus. To live in Jesus. And to live like Jesus. Like when's the last time you had a conversation with somebody. And you said, hey, who do you think Jesus is? Well, I don't know. Would you read these Gospels? And in a month, we'll come back together. And you just tell me, based off Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, who do you think he is? Not what the church says he is. Who do you think he is after reading this? This is why we have so little power, because we preach about everything around Jesus, but not Jesus himself. Everybody's talking about morality and future presidents and international policy. And then the church gets sabotaged and drawn into this powerless reality. We're Jesus people. I actually want to be one of those people that when people say, hey, how was your weekend? Say, you know what? Jesus was strong this weekend. Say, Craig, that's super spiritual. No, I'm being serious. Like, bring Jesus into all your conversations. Hey, man, thank you so much for what you said at work the other day. It reminds me of something Jesus said. Hey, I appreciate you saying that. The other day I saw on your Facebook, you said, that reminds me, Jesus was actually... We got Jesus on our lips. We got to get the message of Jesus on our lips. So we have miracles. We have message... Thirdly, we have mercy. Mercy. Come on, Jesse. We have the mercy of Jesus. Now, Greco-Roman society had no place for compassion or mercy, y'all. Seneca, the great philosopher, he said, compassion is the vice of the feeble soul. They had no place for feebleness. Frederick Nietzsche, one of the great uh, atheists of the 20th century, you know why he hated Christianity? He said, partly because Christians love weakness and the despised. Like, that's not what Nietzsche saw. He saw a super race. Macho man. Right? Full of gifts. And this is what he said in his own journal. Christians stubbornly insist on caring for the poor and broken. He didn't like that. Jesus had a bias of mercy to those in need. Didn't matter what need they had. He was able to meet the need. He helped the hurt. You know what Jesus did in Luke 4? He gets Isaiah's scroll out of the desert and he starts his ministry with a first sermon. It is bad to the bone sermon too, isn't it? He stands up in the temple, opens the roll, opens Isaiah 61. He says, the sovereign Lord is on me, right? The spirit of the Lord, what? To preach the gospel to the poor, to bind up the broken heart, to proclaim liberty to the captive, right? Acceptable eyesight to the blind, right? To proclaim the year of jubilee. So basically what Jesus does in his ministry is he opens up with his huge manifesto of God's compassionate care for all of humanity and the whole rest of the gospels is just Jesus living out his opening sermon. He's just living out what he actually declared in his opening sermon. Mark 6, 34, when Jesus landed on the sea, he saw a large crowd and he had compassion on them. 
because they were like sheep without a shepherd. He sees the crowd. He's moved in his heart. Luke 7, he approaches the town gate. A dead person's being carried out. He's, his mother is a widow. That's her only son. And when the Lord saw her, his heart went out to her. Did you hear that? His heart left his body, went out to her. And he felt for her. He had compassion for her. And what did he say? Don't you cry, mama. Young man, get up. And he touches like the place, the casket they were holding. The young man gets up. Jesus is not trying to make a point here, y'all. To try to impress people. No, no. He saw a need and his heart went out. And literally, he does a quick resurrection from the dead and moves on with his ministry. Compassion drew resurrection power out of the Son of God. Compassion is what ignited it. So Jesus says, I, I got to keep the Sabbath. I've been real busy. Let's go, disciples. Goes across the sea. All the people find out he's going across the sea. They run. <laughs> they take off on a marathon, get to the other side. And he gets there. He had divine rhythms, rhythms of restoration, sacred pace. He was engaging, disengaging, spending time with his father. He gets to the seashore and he's like, oh, I'm not supposed to be doing this. I love you. I love you. Be healed. Be healed. Be healed. Like he couldn't even help himself. He's trying to get away, but yet compassion is moving him. Look at all the outcasts. Everybody else whose society said, doesn't matter, Jesus reached to. Jesus lets a sinful woman anoint him with perfume paid for by prostitution. She anoints him. What do the disciples say, or Pharisees say? <laughs> if you are really from God, you wouldn't let a woman like that caliber anoint you. And he said, no, let me tell you something. If you really knew what God was like, you'd be a lot more grateful for your salvation. In other words, the God of the universe, Mary DeMuth says, welcomed perfume that was paid for by prostitution, yet he condemned the self-righteous around her. No other world religion leader has that kind of compassion. The woman caught in adultery, what does Jesus do? He pushes away the self-righteous and creates space for restoration. He has dinner with Zacchaeus, the most hated people person categorically in his day and age and what does he say this man too is a son of abraham he gives him back his identity places him back in society eats at his house why because jesus moved by compassion and mercy in fact the, the word for compassion in the new testament had to be made up by the greek scholars they didn't have a word for this it's this word called splachna that's onomatopoeia you see that spit splachna sounds like it's coming from down here and you know what compassion means in the greek it means the noble entrails of the heart the stomach the lungs and the kidneys so when Jesus saw somebody, this is what stirred. St. Augustine would call it the seat of affections. They had no way to describe what Jesus was doing. So listen to me, church. There was a mercy internally that manifested itself with compassion and restoration externally. And if you look at your life today and don't see compassion and mercy and restoration externally, you've got to then go to the Father and say, I need mercy internally. I need compassion. I think this is a great warning to us because us in the Western world, we're moving so fast. We're moving at such a sacred, I mean, such an intense and speedful pace. The speed at which we live is doing violence to our hearts. The speed is actually hurting our hearts. We're robbing ourselves of the margin to find Jesus in our everyday places. Matthew chapter 25, Jesus said, I'm going to hide myself among the broken of the world. He said, when you do it to one of the least of these, you do it to me. If you go visit somebody in prison, you give them a cup of water, you give them a nice word. He says, I'm literally, you're literally ministering to me. 
I'm literally hidden and disguised in the broken around you. That's amazing, y'all. That can change the way you live. That can change the way you move. What would happen if Christians in Atlanta were not known just for our morality, but for our mercy? There's the mercy people. I've resolved in my heart, I want mercy. Mercy can be exhausting. It can be hard. But you can say to Jesus today, Jesus, show me where you are. Show me where you've disguised yourself. We were in L.A. a couple summers ago. and Come on, team. Um, we were ministering out in one of these communities, several in this room. And I went to the back of the neighborhood knocking on doors for this block party we were going to have. And I come back, and all the team is surrounded around Henry and this young man and this, this uh, mother. And I'm thinking, whoa. Teams being hands and feet of Jesus here. So I'm just going to come in as like, a, like an echo. You know, I just wanted to e- eavesdrop. And um, I noticed they're talking to this young boy. This young boy's got brain cancer. He's got a tumor. Guy on the left here. Young man. And um, they're ministering to him. They're speaking God's word to him. I think Henry was the one that first was reaching to him. But I walked up, and I tell you honestly, when I was standing there, I remember that mama talking about her son, and, and Adriana's there to her right was praying. And I remember just thinking, the whole time they're talking, like I'm in the presence of Jesus. Like I feel Jesus. Like, like for me, Jesus was clothed in that woman's personality. The meekness she showed, it was like, I, I mean, it's like I was seeing Jesus. Never had this moment before, man. You're missing out. You need to pray for these moments. Like she was clothed. And they started praying, and I started thinking, that's exactly what Jesus is doing. Like Jesus loves this young man so much that as he looks at the city of LA, he said, Okay, who's up? Who's up right now? Oh, that oh, that group from Woodstock, Georgia. DP? All right. So here's what I'm gonna do. I'm gonna show that young man I care. So here's what we're gonna do. I'm gonna get DP to go across the country. They're gonna be there. All right, Henry. Here's what I'm gonna do. As you're walking today, I'm gonna move on your heart. When I move on your heart, I want you to go over and talk to that young man and tell that young man that I care for him. Some of you today, God looks at your neighborhood and says, Okay, oh. Who's up? Who's up? Who's up? Oh, 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 yeah, I got him. Craig, there. He lives right there. Okay, that person doesn't know me. They never heard about me. Never know who I am. So, okay, so he's up. Okay, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to move your heart so you'll walk over there and you'll engage them and you'll tell them that I love them. Mission. The mission of Jesus. And I forget, when we finished, that lady said to us, she said, thank you for being so kind to me. Our team's like walking off crying, thanking God. This is your kingdom. Your kingdom's not pulpit. Your kingdom's broken. Your kingdom's with the needy. This is where Jesus has hidden himself in our community. So I'm asking myself this question. Am I a deist or a disciple? And that's what I ask you to ask. You know what a deist is? A deist is a philosophy or a worldview that God created the world, but then he put it on a little timetable and left us to ourselves. So we live by truth and principles. People say our founding fathers were Christians, but really they were deist. Thomas Jefferson, George Washington, they were deist. They believed in God. But they believe that God left it to us to deal. But a disciple is altogether different. You have disciples who you look at what Jesus did, what Jesus taught, the invitations he gave. You look at people in history who took God at his word and you see that disciples and deists are on two different planets. That's not the same thing. So my question is this. If I was to take someone completely objective who did not know you and did not know Christianity and I said, hey, here's deism. Deism is the philosophy that you believe that God's creator but he's really not involved in everyday life and then here's what Christian discipleship is. It's the invitation of Jesus to follow him and to do what he did and then I said, here's what. Hey, here's this dude. His name's Craig Mosker. What I want you to do without him knowing is I want you to follow him around for a year. At the end of this year, I want you to come back and tell me, do you think he's a deist or a disciple? What would people say about you? 
Y'all, there's plenty of content coming out of my life. I'm not hurting for content. I got lots of content. But would people look at me and say, man, he's got the things of Jesus. We, went, we were in the CVS pharmacy a couple months ago. Remember, we took Harper with her lungs and we went to the minute clinic and we were sitting in there and she was taking the deal. And that lady finally looked at us and, uh, and she said, I knew when you guys walked in the door, Jesus was with you. So the question is, is that what people say about you? That, man, when I get around him, man, it's like the presence of God is so strong. He's available. She's available. She's able to be interrupted. She cares for people. Or would they say, you're a deist. Then I wonder what our church is like from the outside. Not what Instagram says. Instagram's a lie. Right? It's not all real. Some of it's real. We're all just kind of posing, waiting for the exact moment that embodies the thing we wish we were rather than just everyday stuff, and we capture that moment. But think about it. In the everyday stuff, what are the, what are the people of DP like? What would people say in Cherokee County? Man, they got growth phases. Woo! They know a lot about God over there. 110 on the Dairy Court Suite, 130. They got growth phases. They know all kinds of doctrine. But man, they're kind of low on the Jesus things. I haven't seen any miracles come out of them in a long time. Mercy, it's kind of non-existent. What would they say? Here's what I do know. This year, I want a life that says, that's my simple goal. Father, give me the things of Jesus. Some of you in here, you're like, I don't even know how I got here. Things of Jesus, like... And some of you are like, give me the Jesus things. And some of you got your preferences like, I want miracles, 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 miracles. You're like, oh, I love theology. Message, message, message. I want me. I... Oh, mercy. I want the mercy. You know what's better than the mercy, miracles, or message of Jesus? It's the mercy, miracles, and message of Jesus. That we have all three. And we say to Jesus, we say to the Father, increase these in me. Thank you so much for listening to this week's message. If you would like more information about our church, be sure to visit us on the web at dwellingplacemovement.org.